Welcome to Law in the Bush, a regional, rural, remote podcast by the University of New England's Law School. I'm your host, Patrick Graham, and today it's my real pleasure to talk with my colleague here in the law school, Marcel Burns, about her research, and that is um, primarily on the legal recognition of First Peoples' rights and on Indigenous knowledges and cultural competency uh, in legal education. So, Marcel, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. You've been a lecturer in the law school at the UNE for a few years now, coming up almost six years. You're a Camilla Roy uh, First Nations woman, and you have a rich and fascinating background outside of academia. So tell me a little bit about, your, about that background before you joined the law school, maybe even before you began your legal uh, degree in education. Okay, well, it's probably relevant to talk about the reason I wanted to become a lawyer, and that was I was studying an arts degree and got involved in some protests on the north coast of New South Wales against a development where the developer had knocked out some ancient um, scar trees and the elders told us they wanted to stop this development. So I got involved in that and I realised pretty soon that my arts degree would not stop a bulldozer. I was actually arrested for intimidating a bulldozer. Um, a charge that I have to say was ultimately withdrawn because- So you was... hurt the bulldozer's feelings in, in that way? Oh, no, is it based on uh, the um, common law charge of intimidation, which is stopping someone with a lawful duty from going about their business. So once this matter went to the Land Environment Court and the development was found to be illegal, they hadn't complied with their development consent, then the charge of intimidation could not be made out against us because they were acting unlawfully. Um, the unfortunate thing about that case involves the Evans Head Banjalang Aboriginal community and Iron Gates development is that the cultural heritage issues were not found to be sufficient to stop the development, although the development was stopped and found to be unlawful. And some um, 15 years later, that um, proponent has put the development back on the table again, and it's currently being, being considered by the New South Wales state government. Yes, so going from there, I graduated with a law degree, and then I went to work with the Aboriginal Legal Services in New South Wales as a criminal lawyer for six years. I also worked on some native title matters as part of my professional legal training with a small law firm on the North Coast and then also did a stint with um, Legal Aid Commission of New South Wales doing a civil law outreach clinics for Aboriginal communities on the North Coast of New South Wales. So that's part of my professional experience and background why I became a lawyer. But Obviously, one of the things that really motivated me to get involved in law, in particular legal education, was to improve the recognition and rights of um, First Peoples in um, international and domestic laws. So you've been right at the core phase from day one um, in terms of the uh, relationship and interaction of the law with uh, Aboriginal people right from the very, very start. Sure, yes. Mm, did not know. Yeah, brilliant. So... Well, relatedly then, on your PhD research, which is ongoing, you're um, looking at native title laws, uh, indigenous rights and, and concepts of legal recognition. There has been a lot in the news recently on the interactions, 
evergreen issue here on the interaction and tensions between, on the one hand, those managing natural resources, whether that be private companies, government entities, and on the other hand, that tension between that management and Australia's Indigenous people and their cultural heritage, uh, so that which impacts on the traditional owners of the land and their connections to country, on their country. So it's been a very unhappy state of relations recently, or certainly more high-profile and shocking incidents, not least around Rio Tinto's destruction of the caves and secret sites at the Yukon Gorge in Western Australia last year. So those acts, as I understand them, were, were legal under Western Australian law and, and Commonwealth law, though caused, obviously caused quite massive uh, controversy and, and, and outrage. Um, so what sort of issues are you looking at here, Marcel, and, and what do you think are some important points that we should think about um, arising out of your, your research so far? Well, we saw with the destruction of the caves at Juchen Gorge last year, um, I think it shocked the Australian community and the international community, but it also showed how weak Aboriginal cultural heritage protections are in this country. The destruction was all perfectly legal because neither cultural heritage laws or native title laws were effective to stop this destruction. In, in fact, in many ways, these laws condoned that type of destruction of Aboriginal cultural heritage on Aboriginal held lands. But these are things that are also happening in our own backyard in, in the what we call the New England region. We've had the Shenua coal mine near Narrabri approved by New South Wales and federal governments. And despite its potential to destroy significant cultural heritage sites, some grinding groups that are sacred to Gomorrah people, the development that was approved by the government permits the removal of grinding grooves away from the mountain on which they're located to another site. And I would suggest this is not adequate protection of cultural heritage as it sits on country for Aboriginal people. And the traditional owners also sought an injunction or protection order from the federal minister under the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Heritage Protection Act. But basically, the federal minister said that the socioeconomic benefits of the mine were so important that the Aboriginal cultural heritage considerations were secondary to that. And we see this time and time again where Aboriginal cultural heritage is seen as dispensable when it comes to socioeconomic development in communities. We also have a similar situation with the Billiger CSG project being put forward by Santos which basically threatens the Great Artesian Basin, the um, essential water supply that supports communities, supports ecosystems throughout the northwest of this country. And um, from an Aboriginal cultural perspective, water is life, it's central to our culture. So we need to protect our water supply, not just for communities today, but for future generations. This is an issue that affects all life going forward. Do you think, um, just to pick up there for a second, Marcel, do you think, although you would have legal restraints as a, as a backstop and as a constraint on government and private companies' actions, are there non-legal methods or, or routes that would first bring a, a greater sense of shared understanding and mutual respect before we would get to that? Or do you think we primarily have to, to frame this in, in legal terms? Well, I think... The, what's very obvious, Patrick, is that the legal frameworks are inadequate to address these issues. And I think it is a question of broader education of the community and also of lawyers 
more generally to be able to appreciate Aboriginal people's concerns and to understand the significance of the environment in the long term as Aboriginal cultures have done since time immemorial. When we consider what decisions of what should happen on country, we're not thinking about this generation or the next generation, we're thinking about seven generations ahead and what the impact will be and the sort of short-term thinking that the governments employ in, in issues relating to the environment just aren't ensuring the safety of our water resources, for example, for future generations. So, um, and in the Billiger case, I mean, this, is, this development has been approved by New South Wales and federal governments. There's meant to be conditions to protect biodiversity and manage risk to groundwater. But again, the economic benefits have been seen to be more important than environmental factors and cultural factors. You're listening to Law in the Bush, a law research series about regional rural remote law by the University of New England. But getting back to my PhD research, Patrick, what I'm looking at is current legal frameworks for recognition of First Peoples and First Peoples' rights and how that sort of plays out in terms of native title laws, cultural heritage laws and the like. And looking this in the broader historical view of the early doctrines of international law, which basically authorised colonisation through doctrines such as terra nullius and were really designed by Europeans to facilitate colonial expansion to enable the extraction of wealth and resources from the lands of First Peoples. And these legal doctrines are very much based on a Eurocentric view of civilization and what constitutes the necessities of life. And I think these ideas still permeate um, legal frameworks today when it comes to recognition of First Peoples and First Peoples' rights. You know, we see time and time again the Aboriginal cultural heritage values and connections to country are still being damaged under legal frameworks. So we really have to question how far have we come to in terms of recognising the rights of First Peoples and particularly our rights to determine what happens on our own country and how we can protect country for future generations. Just very quickly, I mean, was, is this an issue that from what you've researched so far should be primarily addressed at a federal level or is it best managed at a state and territory level or is it sort of more holistic integrated both essentially? I think we need a bit of both. I mean the federal government has constitutional power to legislate with respect to um, Aboriginal people but we also see um, treaty processes happening at the state level and, and states have the primary responsibility over how land is managed with some supervisory role for the Commonwealth. So I think we need a holistic approach. The current federal government is not interested in talking about treaties with First Peoples. It's um, said it's not interested in having some form of constitutional recognition that would give power to Aboriginal people to have a say in matters that affect them. And I think this is out of step with current international laws, such as the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but it's also very short-sighted in terms of resetting the relationship between Australian governments and First People in terms of what sort of nation we want to be going forward. And I think Australia has to deal with these issues if it can credibly present itself as a mature nation that has come to grips with its colonial past and even 
continuing forms of colonial dominance, such as these cultural heritage laws and native title laws that really silence Aboriginal people in terms of protecting country and protecting our cultural heritage. So we might get some, yes, innovations and experiments at a state level first and territory level, and then at some stage, maybe that, that might be adopted further up by the, the Commonwealth. Relatedly then around, well, another area of your, another research focus area for you is, is around Indigenous knowledge and, and cultural competency within legal education itself. So this is about building recognition and information on Indigenous knowledge and, and cultural competencies, as I say, into the way that we actually teach law into the, the legal curriculum. So we want to guide tomorrow's law graduates and, and lawyers and, and open their eyes a bit more to some of the unique issues and, and challenges that face Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So this area of your research, Marcel, am I right in saying it focuses on what might be the AA foundation or for stronger relationships and less misconceptions around Aboriginal people and the way of life? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when it comes from two areas, really, uh, my experience working with the Aboriginal Legal Service in northern New South Wales, we had a lot of lawyers working for ALS who were very dedicated and committed to social justice issues. But what I observed was that many lawyers did not have the knowledge and skills to be able to work effectively with First Peoples. I saw a lot of cultural blunders or misunderstandings because non-Aboriginal lawyers had not been trained in their legal education or their professional development to work with Aboriginal peoples. So while there are a lot of well-meaning people, sometimes good intentions are not enough. And it sort of became obvious to me that their prior legal education had not prepared them for this work. So in becoming a legal academic, I suppose one of my missions has been to improve the development of knowledge and skills of our students and our graduates so that they can work effectively with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. We've also had many reports um, going back to the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody back in 1991. So we're talking about a period of 30 years, which have made recommendations on the need for legal professionals to develop cultural awareness and to improve the relationship between First Peoples and the legal system. However, in a lot of cases, these recommendations have not translated into action in terms of legal education and professional standards to make this a reality. So I got together with a group of Aboriginal legal academics about five, six years ago now to develop a program to improve the knowledge and skills of law graduates in terms of their understanding of Aboriginal peoples and the law, some of the history of colonisation, things like Terra Nullius and the Stolen Generations. But we also recognised that we had to work with legal educators more broadly to develop their knowledge and skills because clearly their legal education had also failed them in terms of developing their understanding of Indigenous issues. So we developed a program called the Indigenous Cultural Competency for Legal Academics Program. And as part of that program, we consulted widely with Indigenous legal service providers, peak organisations and Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal academics to develop guiding principles and a set of resources to support the embedding of Indigenous cultural competency in legal education. When I talk about cultural competency, it's 
sort of very technical term, but basically what it means is developing the skills to be able to work effectively with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So are, that this, are we at an early stage at the moment in terms of embedding cultural competency skills within the legal edu- education curriculum? We're pretty close to the beginning of that, that journey, really, to, in order to make it effective. Okay, well, I have to say at, at UNE, when I first started, I did an audit of the Indigenous content in curriculum and there had already been some work done on that and UNE is in pretty good shape. So I'm doing a bit of fine tuning on that with our current review of curriculum and particularly the first year units at mm. in the Bachelor of Laws program at UNE. But also I have to say, one of the outcomes of the project is that the Council of Australian Law Deans, which is the peak body that represents all law schools in Australia, has recently introduced a requirement to include Indigenous perspectives and cultural competency in the 2020 Australian Law School Standards. So that really um, is a benchmark against which law schools are measured. That's a real breakthrough, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, because there hasn't been any formal requirement for teaching Indigenous knowledges or cultural competence in legal education before. This is a breakthrough. We've seen other areas of professional activity like health and medicine where understanding of Aboriginal issues has been part of the professional accreditation standards and education requirements for quite some time. So this is a breakthrough in terms of the legal profession and legal education in particular. But one of the other reasons I'm really passionate about embedding cultural competency into legal education is because when we look at our current legal frameworks and how they deal with issues of first people's rights and recognition, as I've said, they're, they're pretty inadequate. So I think we really need to educate the next generation of lawyers to have a better understanding if we're going to create better legal frameworks to support the aspirations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and also to um, protect our cultural heritage and protect country for future generations. So just to wrap up then, Marcella, your your research, these two sort of core planks, they are really two sides of the same coin in terms of the embedding in this this additional knowledge and cultural competency so that we have a greater understanding of each other and, and, and mutual recognition and, and respect but ultimately given that our disputes in life are transacted through legal uh, regulation and, and they become legal disputes which ultimately have to be arbitrated we have to ensure that the legal protections and, and safeguards are up to standard and, and relevant and of use to and accessible to indigenous people is that a way that you could sort of frame your, your research overall Sure. Well, as I say, uh, Patrick, it's more than one way to skin a cat. And we can have fantastic legal frameworks, but they're not going to be effective if the people that are making decisions within them don't have an understanding or knowledge of the issues that Aboriginal people face and, and don't have an appreciation of Indigenous people's knowledge in terms of caring for country and caring for cultural heritage. So, so even the way that the, the laws are framed in the very first place, and it goes back to that before they're even uh, applied in reality. Yep, how they're framed, how they're interpreted is all critical. And so we need um, our lawyers and decision makers to be better educated on the issues to make positive changes for the future. Well, Marcel, that's fascinating. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. So thanks for joining us on the Law in the Bush podcast. 
Thank you, Patrick. It's been great talking with you. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Please fill out our survey in the link below.